Joshua. And again, you're listening to Get Off My World, a Doctor Who podcast brought to you by uh, three gentlemen uh, from the Minneapolis area of a certain age who love the classic series of Doctor Who and sometimes enjoy the new series as well. And today we're very, very pleased to have, uh, this is your third time, right? I think it's my fourth or Your fourth? fourth. Your, we have a four P already? Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, Enough returning, times that we can't remember. Yes. So that's awesome. Our, our returning guest, Ariel Leaf, uh, so glad to have you back. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, the state of the world being uh, such as it is, we would like to start off this episode with uh, something about Doctor Who currently that's making us happy, uh, which we, we call this segment Temporal Grace. Uh, who would like to start? Well, I'll start. Oh, okay. Uh, so, like, I like to do around Halloween, simpler times, uh, <laughs> happier days. Uh, but as I always like to do around Halloween, I watched a few Christopher Lee movies. Uh, this time out, my wife and I watched, among other things, Scars of Dracula, which is one of the latter period Hammer Horror Dracula movies. It's a very bizarre, very gruesome film with really strong sadomasochistic overtones. Uh, but I bring it Keep up. Keep selling it. Yeah, I bring it up because it has Patrick Troughton in it. Oh! Just a few years after Doctor Who playing a character called Clove, who's essentially the Igor character. Dracula's helper who sometimes tries to kill the heroes and sometimes tries to help them escape. But, of course, when he does help them escape, he immediately confesses everything to Dracula, who torments him by burning him on his already already heavily scarred back with a red-hot saber, <laughs> which Clove seems to kind of enjoy? Anyway, in my headcanon, I like to think that Clove is really Salamander from Enemy of the World, <laughs> who, after he was sucked out of the TARDIS, was driven insane by the time winds and wound up as Drax's servant with a psychosexual fixation on the volcanic <laughs> fires that he was going to use to control the world. Wow. And that's what I love today. I kind of love that now, that's too. That, that, that's, a, that's a terrific... Headcanon. That's <laughs> someone's got to make a YouTube video of that. Ryan Schomer. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is maybe old news by the time this podcast goes out, but I am excited because uh, Stephen Moffat has said that there will be a classic series writer writing for series ten. He has not announced who that is. Oh. But speaking of headcanon, you remember back when they announced the opening episode of series nine and it was the sorcerer's apprentice and i became convinced it would be a sequel to battlefield which we'll be talking about today. <laughs> i'm once again convinced <laughs> that we're going to see ben aranovich 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 that guy aranovich. ben guy coming back to write peter capaldi as merlin a prequel <gasps> sequel timey wimey oh i would really love that like 
one of the things I know we'll get to talk about Battlefield in a minute, but I really love the idea of the Doctor as Merlin, and mm-hmm. so I would really love to see that episode come to fruition. And Peter Capaldi is super yeah. cranky, no BS Merlin. <laughs> That'd be excellent. Um, well, the thing I'm happy about is a really selfish thing. It's a very, very small thing. But in the desperation to prepare for the episode today, I had to try and figure out how to watch this Region 2 video that I have, which I've <laughs> never gotten around to doing. And I accidentally, about half of the DVDs that I ordered ended up being Region 2. <laughs> and just out of lack of time and general frustration... I just put them in a closet and didn't look at them again. And so now in order to prepare for this, I had to finally find the hardware to download to my computer so I can watch all my Region 2 videos. So I'm kind of having a little binge fest right now. Uh, Good. Good time for it. My, uh, this is another one of my sort of odd tangential things that I have to do kind of a certain amount of explanation up front before it makes sense. But, uh, Again, I'm not sure when this is is dropping, but it might be old news by the time it comes out. But uh, I am in uh, the local production of A Klingon Christmas Carol this year. Uh, I am playing Scooja, which is the Scrooge character. And uh, so I am attempting to memorize a script that is in Klingon, which is, uh, for all practical intents and and purposes, I'm doing this phonetically. Wow, is this difficult. And... uh, my plan uh, for this evening and tomorrow evening is uh, I am thinking of adapting Matt Smith's acting technique, his line memorization technique for Doctor Who, which is mentioned in some making of documentary. I can't place which one right now. But someone was like asking, you know, Matt Smith, like, how do you memorize this dialogue? It's so, you know, science fiction dialogue is notoriously hard because it's all made up words and concepts and things. And, uh, Apparently, they, they, they got a look at his script, and he wrote, drew these sort of zigzaggy lines, which was like sort of uh, amateurish musical notation of like, go up here, and then kind of go down here, mm. and then, you know, kind of this is a little up and down, and then, you know, like, like he, he, he wrote the tone of voice. Oh, wow. Like a rhyme and meter. And yeah, it, it, like, 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 like the pitch of his voice, it, like into the script. And that was sort of his memorization technique. Wow. And if he actually and if you watch like Matt Smith's acting, he does kinda go way up here and then kind of, you know, he's like doing all sorts of things with his voice like that. And so I'm thinking I'm thinking of doing that uh, to memorize Klingon. Uh, and I guess I'll let you know how it goes. I mean it'll 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 be some effort because I pretty much have to like oh god, type out the whole script and you know, so that there's enough space for me to like draw these like lines under it and stuff. Yeah, I actually did that show uh, a yeah. number of years ago, yeah. although I had a much smaller part than you do. Yeah. And we were also given the option of cheat screens that faced us, but I found that I didn't ever want to actually look at yeah. that because then I would rely on it. And if you want to be able to have any interaction or any real, you can't be looking yeah. over your shoulder. Yeah, they're screen. planning on doing that uh, this year as well. And I just, I, I have, I'm just sort of skeptical about it at all, working at all. Yeah. You know, and, and... And you just um, want to believe in yourself and your performance, yes. too. Yeah. So, uh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I... I, uh, I want to see Kelvin Hatley playing Matt Smith playing <laughs> Klingon Scrooge. <laughs> There'll be a lot of needless twirling and arm flapping, I hope. <laughs> uh, I have... I think this is true uh, anytime I'm going to play, like, a character who's older. I, I, I find myself noticing bits of William Hartnell. <laughs> I'm playing an old crabby guy. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> you know. Or actually, Klingo, you'd be like, hija, hija, hija. But, but, um, or, or would that be Lou? 
I forgot. I'm sorry. Digression. There's like two different ways to say yes in Klingon. There's like the emphatic yes, like like definitely yes, which is like hija, and then lu, which is like a more resigned yes. Lu. It's like, it's like more like yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> can, can you just take us out talking some Klingon? I'll just fade out on it. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> I, again, I don't really have it memorized, and I don't really know like the individual components. I just kind of know. You're really selling tickets here, Kevin. I am. All right. It's, it's a it's a it's a tough ass show. The dialogue is insane. The physicality stuff is is bonkers. There's there's makeup and, and costumes that are a lot more elaborate than I've ever had to do. Okay, for round two, I think Ariel has a special topics Dalek question for us. I do, I do. And this uh, came from finding one glorious thing in a sad sea of Facebook this past couple of weeks. (laughs) So my special topic for you is what is the oddest thing you have ever seen a companion or a doctor do pre or post who? Like, it could be an appearance in an advertisement or a a special guest appearance in a TV show or a cameo. I came across this hideous, hideous knitting magazine for 1980s sweaters. It was in 1986, and it's called something like Wit Knit or something like this. And there's all sorts of famous British actors in this, including a bunch of people from Absolutely Fabulous with these, like, kittens reading books on their chests. And lo and behold, in the middle of it, there's Mel wearing this giant saxophone with jazz spread across <laughs> her chest. And she's doing like a pinup pose, but it doesn't work because it's a giant sweater. So there's just this awkward hand with a little white lacy glove a la Madonna kind of trailing out of this sweater. And it was, I kind of want to frame it. Wow, yeah, that's... That was the baggy sweater era, wasn't it? It was the baggy sweater yeah, era. Yeah. Like, really, really short mini skirts that were super tight. And yeah. Really, really baggy sweaters. Yeah. <laughs> I can so picture Mel wearing a baggy sweater with a giant saxophone that says jazz on it. <laughs> she would just totally wear that, you know, just to go to the store and get milk or something. I'm tempted to talk about Sylvester McCoy's early career, because before he was on Doctor Who, he was apparently better known as like a like a sideshow oddity. Mm-hmm. He would do things like uh, hammer a nail up his nose on the secret policeman's ball and put ferrets down his pants and things <laughs> like that. And so I, my understanding from uh, friends I know who uh, live in the UK, it's like absolutely preposterous that he would have gotten cast as the doctor. It'd be like Jim Carrey or somebody, Jim Carrey 20 years ago or so being cast mm-hmm. in, a, in a serious role like that. Uh, there's also that ad that, that Tom Baker and Lala Ward did for the Prime Computer <laughs> ad. Yes. Yeah, this is something you can find online, Those are too. great. It's a commercial. They're actually really well done. They're yeah. funny, because it's two of them being very witty uh, together. They're essentially in character. Yeah. Because yeah, the TARDIS appears, and oh, yeah. they talk as the Doctor and Romana about how great these computers are. It has a little bit of a, a romantic chemistry that they lean into, even more so than on the actual Yeah, she's draping show. herself over his yeah. shoulders. And, yeah. yeah. Kind of sexy. Oh, yeah, lots of sexual tension in those prime computer ads. <laughs> I would add, if you're talking about odd or maybe even embarrassing performances, uh, I felt so bad for uh, Sylvester McCoy in uh, the Hobbit movie. Uh, that oh. turn is right against the brown. I thought was, uh, I mean, it's the whole movie. Not so. I think he yes, was, he was clearly cast to do what he did in there, and he was asked to do what he did, but I felt 
bad for him and myself. I mean, I, I was glad to, to see him it. get work inherently, <laughs> and I liked seeing Radagast in the mm-hmm. story, and I had a lot of fun having this geeky moment where I realized how he got the role mm-hmm. um, because he toured um, um, doing Lear with Gandalf. Yeah. And so that he's the fool to Lear, and so Radagast is also kind of the fool to Gandalf. So yeah. I was kind of like, oh, that's all really yeah. cool. This still sucks. <laughs> exactly. It's like, why, the... do, why does he have to have poop dripping down his face? Like, Radagast <laughs> is not described as having poop dripping down his face. I love the idea that was there was some moment of inspiration. Like, last second, the cameras were about to roll, and someone was like, Stop! You need some poop coming down your face. <laughs> like, can we get poop in here? Probably no. Sylvester could have contributed that idea himself. <laughs> Probably. I did have uh, that moment when he first appeared on the screen where I was the only person to fangirl in the audience. <laughs> so I was just like, <laughs> nobody, nobody else cares. Okay. No. <laughs> oh God, I all, all I, I I've never actually seen this, but I just remember the story. Colin Baker told it his like first ever acting job for the the BBC, it was on some science fiction related show where it was like a fascistic future thing and, and, and the workers were rebelling or something and he was just some random rebel and he had one line and the line is like, no, we are revolting. <laughs> Which depending on where you put the emphasis means something. Yeah. And, and he kind of went to the director like, uh, can I possibly change this to no, we are rebelling. And the director's like, Shut up and do what you're told, actor boy. And, and uh, so that was apparently his big debut. It always threw me a little to see uh, Secret Diary of a Call Girl with Billy Piper. Oh, yeah. Uh, given the character of Rose, and that had been the only thing that I'd ever seen Billy Piper in, uh, to have this highly charged sexual show uh, fo- yeah. immediately followed up on that. I know other people, again, she was a well-known singer well, before that happened. What am I seeing these days? If Penny Dreadful. Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually really like her in Penny Dreadful. Mm-hmm. I like her far more than I liked her on Doctor Who. Yeah. I, you know, I was kind of stunned to watch David Tennant as Kilgrave on Jessica Jones. Huh. He, he was good enough at that yeah. that, like, I couldn't figure out, like, how anyone ever saw him as, like, a heroic figure. Well, what I loved about that is yeah. that he's very close to his role as the Doctor. With the same <laughs> sorts of mannerisms and delivery, only it's evil. Yeah. Deeply toxic evil. Yeah. yeah. And I tend to watch things very, very late, so I'm not sure if Tennant had already been the Doctor when he was in Harry Potter, or if it was vice versa, because I'm always really, before, really late I'm to the game. Sure. Mm-hmm. But by the time I saw Harry Potter, I had seen Doctor Who. And so I was like, what is he doing in that case? What is he doing with his tongue? Like, <laughs> I was just, it was not, I, I don't know, it kind it, of it, it really is, threw me. It is really weird to rewatch, uh, Order, is it Order, Order, the, the, Phoenix, Order of the Phoenix, yeah. because... David Tennant's fame throws that movie so out of whack now when you're trying to watch it. It's just like, boom, there's the doctor as some Death Eater. Like, wait, what? Peter Capaldi had a long career before he picked up as the doctor, and so Lair of the White Worm is how he's entertaining to see, where yeah. he's wandering around in a kilt playing the bagpipes and <laughs> hanging out with Hugh Grant. And he's like 12. Yeah, he's such a Well, and that was the other thing I thought of actually when I was thinking of this topic, and I'm so glad you brought up Peter Capaldi because this made me remember this. I watched World War Z, which I thought was an absolute travesty because the book is phenomenal and the movie is just non... But if you look in the credits, Peter Capaldi's title is Who Doctor? (laughs) W.H.O.Doctor. I wanted him to start swearing, though, and he didn't. (laughs) 
All right. Well, next we have the randomizer. And since I am here, you can guess it's probably going to be a Sylvester McCoy episode. And you're indeed correct. We're going to talk about Battlefield, which also involves Ace and the Brigadier. It is also uh, the episode from which we take our name. Yes. Uh, Get off my world. It was weird to rewatch that after hearing our theme intro over and over. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. And I kept filling in the guitar blast. <laughs> these well, and somehow in your intro it sounds more um, aggressive. In here it's almost casually delivered. Like, yeah, well, get off my world. Yeah. You know, yeah. but somehow with that heavy guitar in there yeah, it becomes much more... <laughs> uh, speaking about the Brigadier, like, the Brigadier's pretty badass in this. Both Brigadiers are pretty Both, badass. Yeah. Yes. Winifred Bambera, who is the new Brigadier in unit, uh, is certainly no one to mess with but you know part of me was kind of thinking like how much of this is trying to give uh the brigadier like a good showpiece and how much of it was just like the 80s it's the stallone and schwarzenegger era out there so do we have to have the the military guy be sort of you know by doctor who standards extra tough i think that was the sort of thing i I think he's in keeping with his original portrayal far more in keeping than modern undead and i wonder how much of it was sort of in response to his portrayal in modern undead he got stuffed in as a school teacher, which just does not seem like mm-hmm. the Brigadier character we know. And it's just sort of like repositioning him as an old soldier. Well, he- and it's also a repositioning of the notion of who the Brigadier can be. Because mm-hmm. if he's this old soldier, he's being replaced by a black woman. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of talking about, we're kind of out with this old notion of how of who our commanders are mm-hmm. and what they should look like mm-hmm. and what our ideals for them have always been. One of the things I enjoy about it, too, it's very aware of what it's trying to do. It's aware of the difference between uh, the old unit and the new unit, but it's moving forward, but in a fond way. It's not angry about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not angry about the past. It's just it's looking not ahead. not jeering at the past yeah. for being antiquated. Yeah. Or... I like the fact that it opens with a domestic scene between the brigadier and Doris. Yes. Uh, this is the first time, first and only time we ever see Doris. She's mentioned, I think, mm-hmm. once in the Third Doctor era as someone he's going on a date with yep. then this is this is it uh, but I, I think it sets the tone quite nicely um, I like the opening better than the slightly cheesy closing with all the girls going off together um, <laughs> I know it's I know it's cheesy yeah, but I watched it again I was like that's kind of cute <laughs> maybe it's because of the other who I had to watch recently <laughs> <laughs> Talk about later uh, the brigadier in that opening has a gardening ascot just want to throw that out <laughs> I never noticed that before, but I'm like... Well, please don't tell my husband that gardening ascots exist because he will want one. Uh, and when he has them all over again, he's put his gardening ascot back on. You so it see, might be his hosting ascot as well. Uh, I like it. You can just see the brigadier standing in front of his giant rack of ascots. Like, hmm, which one should I wear today? Oh, the green paisley, I think. Is, yeah. You know, I, this is, I, I think, one of my favorite episodes for, for a lot of reasons. But it's like a 90% win, a 10% no mm-hmm. for me. And and I found as I was watching it, it was like, had this rhythm where I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, why? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hideously graphic snake. What is that? And like, I, I love the idea. I love a lot of things where you bring an old myth. In and you mm-hmm. tell it in some new way, or you you bring a myth into the modern time. And as a little kid, I was a super nerd for Mists of Avalon, so I remember being really mm. excited that they were going to mix Arthur in here. And there's a lot of things about Morgaine that I like, mm-hmm. and 
Um, including the fact that I think that actress is actually pretty good. Jean Marsh is great. Uh, I, I love her I, in everything. Yeah, I thought she was really magnificent, especially when she gives the monologue at the end about missing Arthur. and, and Tons of great scenes know. with her. Her, oh. her conversation with the brigadier where they have a piece for yeah. those moments is mm-hmm. a nice conversation when she gives the barkeep her sight back. Yeah. This is about a year after she played the evil queen in Willow. Oh yeah, so. that is her. I kept wondering where I knew her from. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, she was okay. uh, in several uh, early again. Doctor Who adventures too. She was uh, Sarah Kingdom in the Daleks Master mm-hmm. Plan, and she played uh, Richard the Lionheart's sister. I forget her name in uh, the Crusade. Uh, she was also briefly Mrs. John Pertwee for a few years there in oh. the sixties, but that was long over by this time. You know, though, I, I think you're right about it being a ninety percent win and a ten percent failure because uh, one thing. Whatever their virtues, this period of Doctor Who is just almost always a complete failure when it comes to directing. There's a cheekiness to the whole thing. Yeah, and a cheapness. He's not helped by the fact that they decided to shoot the exteriors on video during this period to save money Mm -hmm. instead of film. And so everything looks really cheap. And the battle scenes in particular remind me of all of those zero-budget independent films that my Renaissance Festival friends would do down (laughs) at Minnehaha Park with like a dozen or so jerks running around in costume. It's just like, oh, it's so embarrassing. In some ways, it kind of impressed me because you see actual helicopter stuff. Mm -hmm. People actually get into helicopters and you actually see a helicopter flying. That's not cheap. Yeah, but then we can actually talk about the costumes because there's like this guy running around randomly in red pants. Like she's got all these soldiers, and these are supposed to be these amazing knights of old or whatever. And a few of them are wearing like military fatigues, and a couple of them are wearing these kind of glittery black pants. And then there's this guy running around in red pants, and I can't stop looking at him. And so every battle is completely ruined for me because I'm just hunting for the guy with the red pants that annoys me. (laughs) Yeah, the, the 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 one thing that really got me and made me kind of sort of throw my hands up in the air and go, oh, geez, was uh, the shot of um, the Doctor and Ace just going up the spiral staircase with the rope lights wrapped around the railing, and that's supposed to be the inside of a spaceship. (laughs) I'm like, oh, come on! No, it is very low budget uh, at this time. Yeah. The the special effects are pretty minimal. The music. The music is Oh, the the, um, the Arthurian knight who Anselin. gets Anselon who gets blown through and lands through the roof of a shed like that. Can I ask so why he terrible. has to be called Anselin? Like I assume this is Lancelot, correct? Were were British people just more familiar with Anselin, or am I wrong? I just assumed it was Lancelot versus Mordred. You know, if you go back I, to thinking of the Knights of the Round Table and more games, it's not and, like they couldn't get the rights to use yeah. Anselin, right? I and think. and I didn't recognize Anselin as a familiar knight to me at all. Yeah. So I was very confused. And he's all beautiful and charming maybe, like Lancelot. Maybe they were just afraid of, like, uh, of such an iconic figure mm-hmm. like Lancelot that it would kind of throw the show out of whack. But they so. have Mordred and Morgaine. Yeah. So was the BBC using Lancelot somewhere else at the time? Because sometimes I know mm-hmm. they will have like conflict of interest between stories they're producing. Was there a Lancelot uh, you could well movie be. or series coming yeah, out William that they just Russell didn't want to confuse Lancelot, but I think that was earlier. Yeah. Um, it must have been earlier. And there, there are some cringe-worthy bits of dialogue. Uh, it has that '80s um, over-the-top nuclear war is bad 
you know, when they see sees the nuclear missile and says, "You can," I can tell by the graveyard stench, and you know, True, things but that are a little. True, there's some great quotes too. Like yes, when Anselin no. says to the doctor when he recognizes him as Merlin, he says, "You know, how did you know it was me? Have you seen my face before?" And he says, "No, it's not your aspect, but your manner that betrays you." Like there's something very poetic about. No, I was bringing up the bad dialogue because there are a handful of clunkers that I think occasionally fans will haul out to be really hard on this, but. I think overwhelmingly the dialogue is really snappy mm-hmm. and stylish and yeah. funny. And the doctor's a Jedi. Like oh, I don't know if he ever does this again. Mm-hmm. But when they're trying to not, there there are people who are trying not to get evacuated, and he looks at them and totally does the "This is not the jet, you know, Jedi you're looking for," <laughs> and like mind controls them into get deciding they do want to be evacuated. And I was trying to rack my brains as to if I've ever seen the Doctor do that anymore. Not else. in that he's master hip- style. He'll- he's hypnotized uh, Sarah Jane Smith before. But with a thingy, right? Or, well, he, he, I remember him doing like a thing where he just suddenly like kind of go said something like, "Are you feel feeling tired, Sarah Jane?" And then Sarah Jane says, "Oh no, you're not doing that." And just and she just sort of grabs her by the shoulders and like looks into her eyes and does some kind of okay. I think the Seventh Doctor does that, hypnotism like that again in um, the Silver Nemesis. I think oh, there's a scene yeah, too. Yeah. They were obviously experimenting at this time, making him a little more powerful. It was cool to see Ace have sort of a girlfriend in this episode, although she does nothing. Yeah. She's a student right at the dig. It's unclear where she, she just came sort of from. shows up she and then they kind of like instantly bond over explosives or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's really over bizarre. lemonade, like like not ordering beer or something. Oh, I love though that over. Ace tried to order vodka just to get away with it. That's a great moment where he's like, uh I like a lot of the character moments. I, I, I love the fact that the brigadier just up and shoots the destroyer six times immediately on seeing him. Like, oh, bam, 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 bam. Eh, it was worth a shot. You know? I kind of oh, liked yeah. his cavalier attitude about it, too. Like, well, I figured that probably was going to Now, I have a question that maybe you can answer for me, because this comes so close to being old myth wakes up in New World, but it isn't. Because some of the knights get shot in from outer space, which really confuses me. Yeah, they're from an alternate dimension where there's the magic Why and... Why do they need the... to come in from outside the oh, planet? That's what I don't understand. And at one point, Morgane refers to herself as the dominator of the 13 worlds, in which I went, what? And it never comes up again. And I'm just like, that's this... such an interesting detail to never talk about ever again. The plot's a little loosey-goosey on this. Yeah. There are points where I'm not exactly sure what's going on. It is a, it's definitely, I think, a style over substance episode and I thought it would seem more rickety to me rewatching this. I haven't watched it in years and I think I actually enjoyed it more. And maybe it's because you get used to that ten percent of kind of head scratching stuff or poor directorial choices and you just go with it. And if you go with it, I mean the whole idea of the doctor being Merlin in the oh, future the is a great one. Yeah. It's a fantastic idea. And I remember watching this first run and just that blowing my mind because Doctor Who at that time didn't play around with that kind of timey-wimey stuff very much. Mm-hmm. It's Well, I love that he didn't deny it. I mean, there's this almost silence when he says that he's Merlin mm-hmm. and and it's one of those moments where Sylvester McCoy isn't directed to give some big extreme face and it's just kind of quiet. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, do you recognize me? And it, 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 it gave it weight. It, yeah. it, suddenly the, the, the implement of what the Doctor could do throughout history felt very real to me. Yeah. 
uh, to think, oh, he could be this person that I've always, you know, followed through other mythologies. I don't know. I remember as just a kid just being yeah, blown sort of away by up. the yeah. very yeah. notion that he could be. And then later he says, no, I'm not, but I might be in a very playful way. But then he uh, clearly gets the note from himself, and he's right. even like, I wish I would have given myself more notice. It has an almost Groucho kind of quality, that line that I love. Uh, there's another great line um, when he gives Ace Liz Shaw's badge. Which I don't even look Who's like her, and he's like, think like a physicist. <laughs> or, just a lot don't of really... worry, Ace, it's only a trap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just it has a sense of banter that I don't think a Doctor Who has had almost since Tom Baker. Yeah, and I think they, they do have written. a few other moments where they where they have that kind mm-hmm. of a back and forth, um, and it creates really fun chemistry for them. I wish I'd had time to read the novelization, which was mm-hmm. written by Mark Platt, and it has a very good reputation as being a sort of proto-Virgin Books novel. It's more complex than a lot of the tar- uh, the Target novelizations, at least by its reputation. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if I have it, but mm. I don't think I have that one. Uh, Aronovich himself wrote several Virgin novels, including one called Transit, um, which I remember oh, I enjoying Transit, quite a bit, yeah. and the Also People. So this, yeah, this Andrew Cartmill era really is kind of looking forward to the, to the Virgin Books period mm-hmm. at this point. And some of the playing with time travel again looks forward even more toward the the new series. Mm-hmm. This, this story would be at home there. It would be you know forty five minutes. This could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure on the DVD extras when I first watched it that they were interviewing Ben Aronovich and he said that this was originally proposed as a three parter and it had to be yeah, uh, filled out. I don't think four. you need the outer space or the spaceship. I think it could just be like a bubble of time under the lake, mm-hmm. and it could just be the Arthurian mists has been woken up by the archaeology, and here they are. Like, I don't think you need that extra. Mm-hmm. I kind of like the alternate dimension element of it. Merlin is the doctor from an alter- alternate dimension, or possibly from the future, mm-hmm. uh, that it isn't just Morgane and magic. Uh, I like the the knights with their guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminds me a bit of the Steve Parkhouse comic book, The Neutron Knights, where he meets Arthur and... Um, Catavulcus, I'm looking it up now, the big monster. So I think that might be where Aronovich is getting some of the concept. It's this alternate Arthurian cycle with high technology as well. My favorite thing about this, though, is the Brigadier. And we've been talking about the Brigadier, and I think if we never saw the Brigadier again in any other media, I'd be really happy with this as a swan song. Oh, yeah. And it clearly feels like it was written. Well, he wants it to be a swan song. Like, he takes out the doctor, and he goes in with the gun, and he's ready for Mm -hmm. this to be his last stand. They were going to kill him off. They considered having him die at the end there. Nobody could bring themselves to do it. Yeah. It's a little disappointing that he's never told Doris anything about the doctor, or even really his time at unit. I'm like, oh, come on. That's a big important part of your life. under a lot of orders not to discuss these things. Nonetheless. Yeah, and I... I I feel like this is also the template moving forward to how in um, future stories the Brigadier is approached as this old soldier character, not this sort of kind of sad, befuddled school teacher like we saw in Modern Undead. So the course correction, I think, think works. This is a story that it was always supposed to be a Brigadier story from the word go because, you know, Modern Undead was supposed to be Ian. Yeah. It's really nice. I mean, you know, I, I think this is, you can really see, like, the modern era of Doctor Who kind of for, formulating mm-hmm. in this story. It's just, it still has that kind of weird barrier of of the cheapness and that kind of shot-on-video look that's really hard to get 
young people to deal with sometimes. Well, but I'm, if you really look at the script, I think a, a younger Doctor Who audience would identify with some of the characterizations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I really love the Sylvester in this one. You know, uh, his character goes back and forth a lot between the buffoon and the kind of scary, wise old man. And uh, this is one in which I really... I really enjoy the gravity of his character in this. He does that really badass move where he's threatening to decapitate the guy where he's using the, the, umbrella, <laughs> the, the umbrella and the sword, sword and he's going to just his neck. cut yeah. his head off. Like, smooth use of the umbrella. There was actually a couple smooth got, uses yeah, of the he umbrella. He pulls Mordred's uh, sword arm, back. arm yeah. back. Yeah. I'd li- I also like the, the point that they're keeping with the unit tradition of this is at some indeterminate point in the near future. Because they, the brigadier talks about the king. There's a oh, king of England yeah. at this point. Oh, wow. Yeah. Robert Jezik is in this. I so was going to mention that, yeah. Frobisher appears in this. And that's how into the audios I am, because I hear his voice now, and I go, it's Frobisher. <laughs> he plays a brigme of... <laughs> and that's my headcanon, that that is Frobisher. It's actually disguised. Frobisher. <laughs> He's disguised himself as a Russian unit officer to help out the doctor. You know, I, I like the character of, of uh, Brigadier Bambera, but I, I confess to not thinking that Angela Bruce is that good an actor. No. She is very wooden. The and only thing I've ever seen her in besides this is she plays the gender-swapped Lister from another dimension in oh, an episode oh of Red, Red Dwarf. <laughs> that one. Just, You're right. Very good in that. Oh, that's funny. Well, then the wooden countenance would serve her well. Yeah. That's pretty much what I grew up on a steady diet of, was Doctor Who and Red Dwarf. <laughs> you know who's really good in a very small role is the Brigadier's pilot. Yeah, the Czech. Thought, oh, yeah, she's I, pretty good. Yeah, she's another yeah, great line. Can, yeah. you, can you speak Czechoslovakian only when, when I'm, I'm drunk, drunk, sir? <laughs> and, I mean, again, I think maybe there's a little different camp here. Not like you guys drastically think differently, but I think you guys revisited this stuff after mm-hmm. being young Doctor Who fans, whereas to, I think yeah. for us this was still part of our childhood Doctor Who. Absolutely, kept, yeah. Kept I, did, I didn't. I didn't really see Seventh Doctor so, Who stuff until I was an adult. So I yeah. was. I was. You know, a junior in high school, and to see an episode where they're making jokes like that, like yeah. you know, only when I'm drunk, sir, and Ace tries to order a vodka drink, and and it felt like Doctor Who was growing and up. And her that messing up the bit. timer on the explosive. Like, oh, I always yeah. love her because she's always actually cutting it as yeah. close as she, you know, she, as she can. And, yeah. yeah. So, for me, this was this was like the perfect place for Doctor Who to be when I reached high school. Absolutely. It, it felt like the 80s comic books I was reading. It felt like it was hinting at adult things and loved it then. And I'm surprised that I like it as much now. <laughs> Now round four, wonderful a-functionalism. And since we are closing in on Thanksgiving here in the U.S., at least, I would like to take a moment to ask you guys why you are thankful for Doctor Who, other than the fact that it gives us a chance to get together and talk and make other people listen to us talk. Well, you kind of uh, awoke the thing that I'm grateful for uh, when we were talking about Battlefield and talking about you know what it was like to watch this in high school. Um, and other than Princess Leia, there, I didn't really have any role models that I was seeing yet. I, was, I didn't watch a lot of TV. Um, I read some comics, but uh, a lot of those role models were a little extreme. I'd imagine I was green or really stretchy or something. And Ace was really the first example of the kind of hero or kick-ass sidekick I would want to be. Um, and I remember liking her not only because she was tough, 
um, but because she was someone who worked alongside the doctor without seeming secondary to him. Mm-hmm. She said, no, I'm going to call you professor because that's what I want to do, and I'm going to ride with you for as long as I want to, and I don't care what you tell me, I'm going to keep making explosives anyways. <laughs> and yet they had this really wonderful father-daughter relationship. Like, uh, one of the things I really don't like about the new Who is a lot of the romanticism between the doctor and his companions. Um, I liked that these, these were adventurers, uh, running off to do things together, and they knew somehow they were going to be better because they were together, mm-hmm. but there wasn't any uh, anything beyond, are you in? I'm in. Let's mm-hmm. get this done. And she was really a completely different kind of companion mm-hmm. from anything I'd seen. I mean, I started at the screamer phase. I started yep. with Perry, and then I had Mel, and at this time, it was my father's show, and I just watched it with him because I was there on the weekends, and I fell so in love with Ace that I then began watching older episodes when they were rerunning in the afternoons, um, but she was really probably the first TV character I, I identified with or wanted to be when I grew up. Uh, well, for me, uh, I, I would just like to be... I am thankful for the comfort that's provided by Doctor Who. It's been a long... It's long been a part of my life since I was a child. I've watched the show and I've read the books and the comic books and all these sorts of things. And I think anyone who knows me is quite well aware at the uh, how much I'm very disappointed in American life these days. Uh, the results of the presidential election are, I think, the worst possible thing that could happen to this country. Amen. And it's been a, a very well. It was a difficult election season, I think, for everybody in the country. And it's uh, and the worst thing has happened, and so I'm grateful for things that are giving me personal comfort right now. I know that's not top of anybody's priority list is, you know, with all the challenges facing the country, what how Pat's feeling about it. But, you know, as ter- in terms of self-care, watching a bunch of Doctor Who, mm-hmm. and and in my case, reading a bunch of uh, Rex Stout Nero Wolf novels, which is my <laughs> what I've been doing for the last week or so, is uh, um, that's, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, I can, when I need to take a little break from the world, Doctor Who is going to be there for me. Yeah, I... I'm grateful that Doctor Who provided a, a different template for a, a kind of literature and hero that until I discovered it on TV, I don't think I was really aware of. I love Star Wars, who are, you know, the characters we've discussed, Star Wars versus Star Trek versus Doctor Who before we won't open that can of worms. But, you know, you had those kind of mythic um, characters in, in Star Wars, uh, and I hadn't done a lot of reading of literature before I hit Doctor Who, and it sort of just opened up a lot to me. From Doctor Who, I went to Sherlock Holmes. I started being interested in these English heroes that, to me, seemed so different. They were eccentric, and they behaved like the side characters that would be in American television. They'd be the funny friend, or whatever, and he, they were actually the hero. Um, Genesis of the Daleks, like for a lot of people, that had a huge effect on me. As a kid, I'd never seen a hero stop and have some philosophical discussion about whether or not he had the right to do this action. And this was all new to me and caused me to sort of seek that out in other forms. It also just put me ahead occasionally in school. Just even some of the ideas. I remember being able to raise my hand and talk about entropy thanks to Legopolis. And that's the me first too. one that pops to yeah. mind. But there are others. There's bits of vocabulary that I had and people got where they're surprised that you know that word. And I was like, well, don't you watch Doctor Who? And then they'd punch me or take my lunch money. But in that great moment before they did that, <laughs> I would be the hero of the class. Yeah, I'm pretty much the, the same thing. I, I, I'm just thankful for uh, some depiction of, like, you could be a weirdo and a hero at the same time. Because that was, that was like, a not a thing I had experienced before. I'd only seen um, 
you know, the stoic, strong-jawed, really good at shooting people kind of hero was, like, really all I had experience with. So it was kind of neat to see someone who wasn't ostensibly violent. I mean, the Doctor could be violent sometimes, but, but you know, that wasn't his, his initial thing, you know, uh, was trying to defeat people that way, and he would just... Um, I don't know where to go with this exactly. Because well, he, he yeah. would use humor. He would use things that you yeah. could relate to as a nerd because often you yes. tried to defuse a situation where someone was going to pick on you or beat you up or I something with humor, I, I too. I usually <laughs> defuse them by, you know, trying to take up as little physical space as possible. <laughs> you know, I was also thinking, actually, uh, now you're like, talking about different ways to defuse things. Uh, I think another thing that I appreciated is I went to this kind of alternative punk rock, screw society, mm-hmm. they're all going to turn into 1984 kind of existence. And, and the doctor is constantly coming into these dictatorships or what have you and, and talking sense into people and getting rid of the evil leader. And, and um, that made me hopeful that we would be able to do that too for... A while and then they crop back up, but you know, mm. toppling evil leader. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> put a pin in that. Yeah. Doctor, we could use you right about now. And now for our final round, the Death Zone. We'll be talking about Minuet in Hell, the Big Finish audio adventure. Pat, this isn't this isn't a Death Zone. It's just Minuet in Hell all by its all by itself. That's ridiculous. It's a death zone. So, Minuet in Hell, written by the late Alan W. Lear and Gary Russell. Did he die right after writing this? Because I'm thinking that's possible. He was apparently too ill to finish the script, and so Gary Russell, uh, who would assist him on the first two parts, took over essentially full scripting duties for parts three and four. And now I feel horrible. Okay. this was based on an earlier amateur Script. Yeah. It's so a, this was the less amateurish version. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. As I understand it, Alan Lear wrote an audiovisual fan film set in the historical Hellfire Club, which I think would probably have worked better. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, and then this was adapted for Big Finish. This is only the fourth Eighth Doctor story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very early in the run. And for whatever reason, it well, got... Part of what I understand is it'd be they, they just were able to talk Paul McGann into doing it. It's the first series of audios they did four in a row, and based on his schedule, they had to put these scripts together in a ridiculously short amount of time. And so they did repurpose this one just to get four scripts done in time to have Paul McGann record them. Okay. That makes me feel better. And they repurposed uh, The Stones of Venice, which was a, a test script for trying to get Tom Baker on board, mm. and they moved that script into I, this yeah, Paul McGann's right. first series, and I think the um, I think the Cybermen might have won from the same uh, season of stories might have also been a slightly repurposed old one. So they were really scrambling, in all fairness to them. <laughs> they still had the audacity to put it out on CD. <laughs> Yeah, so what did we think about this story, guys? Uh, first, I gotta say, I was quite disappointed that there is no minuet in it. I was waiting for a minuet, and there is not one. It's really an odd title. Given, it's because it given, sounds awesome. Given the the general tone of it, I mean, it doesn't... You know, minuet, you think of some kind of elegant, sophisticated dance between some super brilliant villain and some super brilliant hero, and, and that's not... And all what's going on. Now, Pat, for listeners who have not heard this, and hopefully listeners who never will hear this, could you give us just a quick little synopsis? Yes. No. Yes. 
<laughs> so at some indeterminate point in the future, some part of the southern United States has seceded and become its own new state called Malibolgia. <laughs> Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, Tennessee, and Malibolgia. <laughs> should be pointed out that Malibolgia is Dante's eighth circle of hell. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if so all of So it's entirely those... logical that a southern state would pick that. <laughs> yeah, so all those southern well, by Baptists... then it might be so warm down there that it... Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, the brigadier is involved. Uh, the, doctor, the eighth doctor and Charlie are involved. They come... Um... Okay, you guys. This whole thing is hilariously random. It's like somebody played a Doctor Who Mad Libs. And it's like, <laughs> I need a really companion. Almost episodes spliced together very poorly. Yes. You've got the sex club of demons over here, and you've got the mind control asylum over there. And the political thing that sort of doesn't really tie anything together? Mm, not at all. It really, it, and the American accents are atrocious, even by... Big Finnish standards. I mean, it's, well, at yeah, one they, point there's like the foghorn leghorn the guy's doing. I'm yeah, like straight out mm-hmm. of the old cartoon. He's like, I say, I say, yeah. Uh. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, they're they're, they're doing really caricatured. And there's Becky Lee. Yeah. Why did, Becky Lee? Why does Becky Lee Kowalczyk have sometimes an East Coast accent and sometimes a Southern accent when she's from Los Angeles? <sighs> oh, for God's sake! Yeah, it, it, it's pretty atrocious that way. And, and weirdly, it's just structured. You you have Paul McGann, right? This is a this is a coup at the time that this was released. Yeah. And you have the Brigadier, and they they don't meet until the very it, end of this entire yeah. story, and they leave Paul McGann having amnesia for three full of the four episodes. The doctors well, and they barely do, they in meet it. briefly, briefly in the insane asylum. Mm-hmm. But it, it's very weird because Lethbridge Stewart seems to really care about this journalist who heard this TARDIS noise and yet doesn't care at all about the other crazy guy who seems to remember him and thinks his heart is beating on the wrong side. Yeah. I don't quite understand what the brigadier's doing in it either. He's not... He's undercover. Uh-huh. It, it doesn't seem like anything particularly brigadierish about what he's yes. doing, he's, really. I mean... Yeah, it's it's like unit project of some kind, but eh. yeah, the the brigadier at some point in the past they've said helped set up an independent Scottish Parliament. He's not a diplomat, as far as I know. He's not an undercover agent, although he acts one in this story. And he seems to know a lot about the Old Testament, so he's somehow a theologian too. He's <laughs> correcting Dashwood's quotations from the Old Testament. I, it's it really there is nothing brigadier about it except that he's played by Nick Courtney. Well, clearly it's a rewrite of an old script, so he's probably getting dialogue from a different character. Almost certainly, uh, yeah. They, they don't even give him anything interesting to do. There are literally three or four scenes of him on a computer composing emails, which he reads aloud. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, That's and I, I I very purposefully tried not to look up this episode at all before I listened to it. And this was one that definitely failed from not having any visuals. Yeah. I didn't understand where they were. Are we on another planet? What's going on? I'm going to guess this guy's the doctor. It sound, that voice sounds oddly familiar. And so it took me forever to even understand where we were, let alone that it was the future, let mm-hmm. alone, like, it. I, I was like it's, 20 steps don't behind. Don't blame yourself. So this I just is- stopped. <laughs> I just stopped after some point, just caring much at all, and started comparing things like, oh, this guy sounds a little bit like Trump. And hey, I really like the phrase, she beat six, six rednecks to death with her prostitute aesthetic leg <laughs> yeah yeah um it's it's so um what, what am i trying to say here bad bad <laughs> and and 
not not to say anything positive about the conservative <laughs> Christian political movement in America. Sorry to get all issue oriented here. Th- this is such a satire of it that's so broad and weird and on the nose about that that I mm-hmm. it, it just put me. Well, it was originally written in the eighties, I would guess. Yeah, right? the, the audio probably. vision. Yeah, so this is mm-hmm. more kind of like a, a, a weird televangelist spoof kind yeah. of thing. And so, yeah, it's like oh, they're all secretly right because then even the, worshippers near the end, yeah. the microphone gets left left on, and yeah. all the worshippers realize he's that money. he's been a bad person. Which is a total ripoff of a face in the crowd if you've ever seen. Well, everything in yes. this is a ripoff, so that's yeah. okay. I, mean, I was thinking Batman Returns, but you're right, the face of <laughs> The crowd is yeah. <clears throat> uh, well, it's a ridiculous lampoon. It's impossible to take seriously, and so at some point around episode three, I just decided to to lean in, and I just like really started to groove on it. And I know, <laughs> I, I know exactly, I know exactly where that was too. It's about it's the time Marcosius shows up oh, because yeah. Marcosius is hilarious. He, he, Every he's certainly trying thing, to be. It's he's like Brian Blessed playing the comic yeah. book guy. Oh sure, yeah, you're gonna do that. Uh-huh. And listeners, Pat's doing a very subtle version right now <laughs> he's not exaggerating but yeah i just let it happen you know i just kind yeah. of like okay i'm this is gonna ha- be happening to me in my ears mm-hmm. uh, so and i i started to love the names tobias cleghorn yeah. waldo God. pickering oh, dr dale pargeter gideon crane yeah zebediah doe brigham elijah dashwood the third there are several oh, unironic yeehaws in this just to let you know <laughs> I started putting at. exclamation marks on the end of every note that I took, hoping that would make me more excited about what was happening. Like, the demon is actually an alien, and <laughs> the brigadier fakes a heart attack, and yet my enthusiasm I, did not. I, I was just utterly kind of baffled by the whole need to, like, why create a fictitious southern state? Was that, like, some kind of weird shield against getting sued by... Like, why, why did you have to, like, name the state? Why couldn't it be just some present-day... Unspecified Southern state. Yeah, yeah. It's or why really not go to the original weird. Hellfire Club? Yeah, well, I would have loved to have heard that story. I, I guess saw. we probably could track it down. It's probably out there somewhere. Yeah. The but you guys, this is the death zone. And <laughs> I'm going to put Minuet in Hell up against another Hellfire Club story, the Avengers TV episode, A Touch of Brimstone, <laughs> with Diana Riggs, holy God, wow, leather fetish yeah. outfit as the oh, queen of yeah. sin. Yeah. Also starring Peter Wingard, most famously known for playing hip 60s spy Jason King. So this is the death zone. Which one of these is better? Oh, the Avengers one. Yeah, I, I haven't even see seen the, the Avengers. One. I want to see the girl better. in that outfit. I'm no, I, 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 I've seen that story. Uh, I've seen that Avengers episode. Yeah, it's Diana Rigg in, in, in the leather bustier thing, and she's like holding a snake. See, and you actually get to see the leather and, bustier because in this it's just described. Yeah, look. Yeah, that's that's uh. Yeah. Sorry, he just showed us the we picture. If you wondered why folks. I growled delightfully. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. I don't think Charlie's imaginary red. Outfit. It's red too. It's described Studded specifically. Red yeah. yeah, it's got spikes, which yeah. is kind of fun. So anyway, yes, you're right. The uh, the Diana Riggs uh, Avengers is much better. So moving on. <laughs> Quantum CD-ROMs, guys. <laughs> Quantum CD-ROMs. I, I forgot that. about that. Oh. oh god. You know what I did like? I did like several things about this this story. I really did. Okay. I like the fact that well, I like the concept that the TARDIS telepathic circuits imprinted some poor jerk 
with the memories of the doctor and they they just could not agree which one of them was the doctor and so they played doctor who trivia to try to determine <laughs> it like well, who who was the doctor with when he visited this planet oh you know it's, i thought that was hilarious oh, and he yes. becomes convinced it's gideon right because gideon actually knows more information than he does correct and this was supposed to be a little joke on anyone who had heard the audio video version because uh, Nick Briggs played the doctor in those. And so Nick Briggs also played the guy who thinks he's the doctor in this one. How clever. Hilarious. there are three people out there that would have totally gotten that joke. (laughs) But you know, you guys, this is the death zone. zone. So we could literally put this up against anything and well, it would lose. like Chris Claremont and John Byrne's classic X-Men run where Jean Grey is hypnotized into <laughs> yes. becoming the Black Queen with Jason Wingard and Emma Frost. <laughs> yes. yes. I'm the best at what I do. What I do isn't very nice. It's Wolverine, you guys. Oh, that's yeah, that's classic Wolverine. That. Classic, yeah. yeah, we should change this to an X-Men podcast. This might have ruined Doctor Who for me. <laughs> so, but this is the death zone, you guys. <laughs> So what about that one episode of Gotham where there's the Hellfire Club? I haven't seen you that one You had to episode. bring up Gotham. Like, that actually makes it... No, listeners, this tells you how bad Minuit in Hell is, because you just have to say Gotham. Yeah, any episode of Gotham is better than in sitting through this Are audio. Are sure? It, it is. This is honestly uh, one of the worst Doctor Who in any medium I have ever endured. It, it's pretty terrible. And, I, and, I, and I, I, I went through a lot of self-examination thinking, <laughs> thinking like... Is this just some sort of weird American nationalistic impulse that I didn't know I had? This is a total character of what America is like. America isn't anything like this. And then, like, <laughs> and then well, maybe we are. <laughs> oh, I don't know. And it's, and it's, it's just you know, it's I, poorly directed. The set, uh, like you said, you can't tell where the scenes are taking place. It, for Big Finish, it's a really sloppy audio. For the sound effects are very minimal and obvious the transitions are kind of non-existent it just cuts from scene to scene the next person just starts talking and you have to quickly figure out oh we've we've switched jumped they don't really use any musical interludes or sound cues to tell you you're in a different location it's really feels like it was put together in a couple hours all of it (laughs) from scripting and they couldn't come up with a better title than pretty little satin bottoms really yeah, the forced prostitution played for laughs is also oh, kind yeah, of that was so icky. dire, um, dire element of it. But you guys, this is the death zone. <laughs> so we have to determine whether this is better than that one episode of Sleepy Hollow where there's the Hellfire Club, <laughs> which I don't know if I've seen. I watched two seasons of it, but I don't oh, remember. We have them. to presume it's better. Yeah, we so, really do. Okay, moving on. You're right. <laughs> Yeah, but it, this is the first time I think Doctor Who's ever talked about Christian mythology up to this mm-hmm. point. I think, yeah. and and it very rarely does mm-hmm. at all. I, the only the next one's probably the Satan Pit. Uh, yeah, they don't really talk about devils and demons and stuff. I, mean, I guess the, the the demons itself. They make reference to the demons somewhere in here. Uh, the Brigadier yeah. does. Right, and often when you yeah. find, see an episode that involves what seems to be demons or spirits, they often turn out to be aliens. But this is the death zone. <laughs> it, it is. Uh, I've run out of so Hellfire Club comparisons. Minuit and uh, Hell versus the actual Hellfire Club. <laughs> oh, the actual Hellfire Club. is. <laughs> One of the things I did like about this episode is that Paul McGann apparently finds it necessary to give us all a little history lesson at the end of the story to oh. set the record straight about the historical Francis Dashwood and the 18th century yeah. Hellfire. Club. Yeah, we hate it was to just defame those guys. Slandered <laughs> by by crappy genre writers for centuries. 
centuries. So uh, I think we got to give it to the Historical Hellfire Club. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Free thinkers yeah. drank a lot. Uh, <laughs> so, so this is we how we're like ending this, this podcast. <laughs> yeah, this, so this is uh, yeah. The, this is a resounding no. Do we think this is the worst thing we've ever listened to or watched for this podcast? At least, I would say it's the worst audio. I, definitely, I enjoyed it for its total preposterousness and yeah. lampoonish value. I kind of got mad because there were a lot of ideas that maybe could have had mm-hmm. value that just sucked. Like, I was yeah. like, ooh, another like breakaway state in the future. That's kind of cool with a dictator. Okay. And there's mind control and there's enforced prostitution. Like, all of these things inherently should be interesting. I liked it when they split Paul McGann's brain into four different people. That, that was, was cool. That, that, that like should have been a much more fascinating yeah. thing than, than what But none of it that. adds up at all. No. no. Yeah. Yeah. No. No, it's our podcast. <laughs> it's the death zone. <laughs> it's killed us. <laughs> Minuet in Hell versus this podcast. <laughs> we lost. We lost. Minuet in Hell is in hell. Well, that's our podcast, guys. Thank you, Ariel, as always, for joining us. And uh, we're going to have you back sometime when it doesn't have to do with Ace. I don't want to make you in this Ace ghetto. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to represent her. No, don't get me wrong. Uh, but I am more of a Whovian than just Ace yes, alone. we are happy to have you anytime. <laughs> um, and next time, we will be talking about in the randomizer, Pat. <laughs> the Celestial Toymaker. Huh. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's a thing we can talk about. <laughs> All right. Awesome. And we will also be throwing into the death zone our last round of Brigadier-related entertainments. We are doing the fan-made video downtime, written by Mark Platt, versus the Sarah Jane adventure, Enemy of the Bane. Both are big Brigadier episodes, so you'll want to tune in for that. Until next time, I'm Joshua. I'm Pat. And I'm Kelvin. And we're saying... Get off my world! Is there something that you are, you're grateful for that Doctor Who has added to your life in some way? Let's, we'll pause and wait for him. Pat just went to get our pizza. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back in about 45 minutes. <laughs> If we sound extra bloated.